You are listening to the Tour des Flaneurs, the cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapien. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage 13, today we're in Saint-Étienne. Well, it's another day, another drama at the Tour de France. We're expecting a, a quiet stage, but it was not to be. And we'll be talking more about that in this episode. But I have to say, I've logged on to my Zoom and uh, I can see Ian Boswell there. I can see Francois Tomazo. And But you guys seem to be multiplying. I'm, I feel like I'm either at a board meeting or I'm running a nursery because we seem to have been joined by Ed Pickering of Ruler Magazine. Hello, Ed. Hello. How's it going? Yeah, good. What, what are you doing here? Uh, well, I've been driving Francois and Ian around the last few days. Um, we've been talking about cycling so much in the car, we thought we might as well carry on for the podcast. Oh, very well, how gracious of you. Oh, I hope you're not, getting, you're not getting paid for your car musings now. No, no, being paid in good company on the road. Oh, <laughs> how, how kind of you. Well, I should start by saying, uh, Francois, where are you? Where are you all? We're, we're actually uh, about 30 k's away from Saint-Étienne in, in the hills or almost the mountains. We're in a place called Le Bessa and it's, it's pretty close. It's like 500 meters, half a mile from La Croix de Chaubouré. That's a, quite a famous cycling climb. Uh, the last time it was climbed, uh, and I was there, so I, I was looking to to remember, and we're staying at the same place, actually, place famous for frog legs, and, and you can be sure I'm going to have frog legs later. But anyway, La Croix de Chaubourg, last time there was a, a World Tour race uh, here, it was won by Richie Porte, ahead of Garen Thomas, you know, went 2015. So, uh, well, from f familiar cycling terrain, it's, there's really a... A mountain feel here. Uh, I think in the winter it's a Nordic skiing uh, resort. It's very small but very very nice. So yeah, we're uh, fine. Uh, and and how was it today, Boz? Uh, we're looking forward to hearing your breakfast with Boz uh, a little bit later. But not so many uh, big climbs that you had to do first thing in the morning. Today. No, and and we'll dive into the rest of it later. But I actually didn't even get on my bicycle today, um, which is kind of nice. Yesterday was a big day, as as the listeners heard, and I. Uh, I was tired, to be honest, so I was, I was happy to, to take a rest day, and um, I explored some other things today, like access to the finish line VIP booth, so I, uh, yeah, explored some different things on the tour, and Francois actually didn't even know that we could get in there, so I'm teaching, uh, teaching Francois something that, you know, usually he's teaching me things about the tour, but I taught him something new today. Oh, we like that. Well, you have to be careful, because obviously uh, old Eddie Pickering, sly old dog that he is, might be trying to steal your job, so... You've got to be careful with things like that. Well, let's find out what actually happened uh, in today's stage, stage 13. Here's the tale of the attack. Stage 13, unlucky for some, and none more so than Warren Barguy, who didn't take to the start because of COVID. A long, lumpy stage to Saint-Étienne, 192.6 kilometres, which could favour a break or possibly the sprinters who still had something in the legs. There was a huge tussle to make it into the break. A promising early group of five were swallowed up on the approach to Cote de Brie. The accelerations of the bunch sending 12 times tour stage winner Peter Sagan out the back. Ganner's huge effort at the head of the pack saw him distance all but Matteo Jorgensen and Stefan Kung, the trio reaching the top of the Cat 3 climb first and gaining 10 seconds. More fast finishers were put in trouble, though. The only sprint winners of this year's race, Fabio Jakobsen and Dylan Grunewagen, both dropped. With so many teams missing out on the nascent break, 19 riders struck out in pursuit. 
Jonas Vingegaard's Jumbo Visma team were happy to let that go, but with no men up the road, Alper Sinderkernig took to the front and even their sprinter Jasper Philipsen worked to rein in the move. The tempo split the bunch. As it caught the counter-attack, the breakaway trio remained at 35 seconds ahead. Trek Segafredo's Quinn Simmons piloted former world champion Mads Pedersen ahead. Fred Wright and Ugo Uhl also seized the opportunity, and Owain Dool tried but eventually called off his effort. The trio ahead waited up to become seven. Pedersen and Simmons of Trek Segafredo, Filippo Ganna of Ineos Grenadiers, Kung of Groupama FTJ, Jorgensen of Movistar, Wright of Bahrain Victorious and Uhl of Israel Premier Tech. The peloton were satisfied with that and eased off, which allowed the major sprinters to rejoin them. Lotto Sudal and Alpacin de Kerning shared the work to keep a short leash on the breakaway, ready to set up their respective sprinters, Caleb Ewan and Philipson. With just over 80 kilometres to go, crosswinds. The bunch was split into three, with Wout van Aert one of the riders to get caught out. It wasn't long before the pack regrouped, but by that point the breakaway had stretched their lead to two minutes. Quickstep Alpha Vinyl's Jakobsen had a hard time of it, needing the assistance of several teammates to keep contact at the back of the bunch as soon as the road kicked up. Sagan was also distanced. Then, at 71 kilometres to go, Lotto Sudal, driving the pack, misjudged a left-hander. Caleb Ewan, for whom they'd been working, came a cropper. Bloodied and with a banged-up knee, his intentions for the day were in tatters. With few teams driving, the peloton struggled to make inroads on the brake's advantage. And when Ewan threw in the towel on his pursuit to the pack, with 50 kilometres still to race, it looked odds-on for a breakaway victory. With Grunewagen and Michael Matthews in their ranks, Team Bike Exchange applied some horsepower to the chase. Not without a few, let's say, sketchy moments through the sweeping bends, though. But at 13 kilometres from Saint-Étienne, it was clear the brake would succeed. Needing to shake TT specialist Ghana, Pedersen timed his attack perfectly. A moment's inattention from the Ineos rider, offering the Dane the moment to strike. Wright and Uhl chased on, but Ghana, Jorgensen and Kung were done for the day. Uhl tried his luck on the final rise with nine kilometres to the line, but Wright and Pedersen held on comfortably. The front three continued to work well together and their lead was 27 seconds with five kilometres remaining. Trying not to take the fast-finishing Pedersen to the line, Wright attacked at three kilometres to go and Uhl a kilometre later, but Pedersen was unshakable. In the run-in, Uhl was forced to the front, with Pedersen starting his explosive sprint from the middle at 250 metres to go and no one could get near him. A third stage win for Danish fans to savour, with Wright taking second. Van Aert led in the peloton for yet more green jersey points. The cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapien. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insight and personalized analytics. We are here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, title sponsors of The Cycling Podcast. You'll have heard by now that they have their own podcast too, The Super Sapiens Podcast, hosted by Zylon Van Eyck and Dr. David Lippmann. 
Here's a clip from their recent episode with someone who I consider is one of the most interesting voices in the peloton. That's pro rider Ashley Mulman Passio. You know, Banyales is a little bit more of like a local town. Um, Girona is fantastic, but it has become, you know, very sort of metropolitan. It's it's not, it's very, you know, there's a lot of expats who have settled in Girona now. Um, so you don't really necessarily always get the real flavor of, of living in Catalonia. So uh, Banyales is great because the other reason I love it so much is, you know, pro cycling is pretty intense. So when we're at the races or busy or with our team, you know, it's, it's really intense. And so going back to Girona and just being confronted every day by all the pros, I kind of felt like, how do you ever escape? So, you know, Banyales is also great because I feel like a normal person in Banyales. Find out more about Super Sapien's system of continuous glucose monitoring, which can help tailor your fueling and training for success. Go to supersapiens.com. Well, today people were, I guess, maybe being over hopeful and thinking they might just get a, a calm transitional stage here at the Tour de France. It has been so full on uh, up until now, but there was... Uh, Plenty going on uh, between the break and the uh, sprint teams, wasn't there, Francois? Yeah, obviously there was, you know, as, as often on the Tour de France, you know, this expression of transitional stage, every time at the, at the end of the stage you ask a rider, so how, how about that transition? I think the first time I saw, I actually saw Ian on, on the Tour uh, was at the start of a stage one morning and I said, oh, you're going to have a quiet day today, Ian, uh, you know, and he, and you you kind of didn't take it, you know, you looked at me saying, what is he saying? There's no, like, you know, quiet day on, on the Tour and trans, trans, transitional stages are often, uh, you know, more much much harder than we think. And well, very often, of course, the the fight is between the break and uh, the, the sprinters teams. Today, there was a the uh, I guess one of the big factors, and we we'll talk about it, about it later, was probably the, the crash in in which uh, Caleb Ewan was involved because maybe at that moment the the, the, the sprinters teams decided you know to call it a day and not not chase as hard as they were uh, until then also well as you said in tail of the etap in in the in in up front when you have guys like Philippe Ogana and and Stefan Kung leading leading the way you know like like probably the two of the best time trial specialists and 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 the other members of the of the break being also ex exceptionally good uh, ruler, uh, uh, you know, an, an homage to Ed <laughs> here, you know, you, uh, uh, you obviously it's a very, very, very difficult uh, break to, to catch uh, along the way. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, these stages are, they're never as easy as they look. And, you know, obviously with, you know, two hard days in the Alps behind us, there's a lot of tired legs. And, you know, you think about a lot of the, the sprinter teams that are now expected to be on the front and ride to pull the break back. I mean, you get the numbers that are coming across, like Francois said, with, you know, Kung and, and Ghana, you know, it's it's not easy. And I think we're seeing, you know, it's been a trend over the last 10 years that every rider is now strong. You know, it's not a breakaway. We, we don't see breakaways get 20 minutes and, you know, GC riders let, it, let them take the yellow jersey. It's, you know, every day is people are racing for something. And I think we saw that again today. Yeah, I actually thought there was a strange dynamic or an interesting dynamic in today's stage. Which was it's advertised on the on the official tour website as a flat stage, and people were talking about it as if it could end in a sprint in a bunch sprint. And the sprinters teams did seem to be working towards that, but I don't know. I, when I looked at the stage and I look at what's gone so far in this tour, and you know felt the heat of the sun, 
this morning, even at altitude at Outdoors. Um, I just felt that that there was there was never going to be a bunch sprint, and and you know once that break went with such strong rulers, it's not just Kung and Ganna who are obviously two of the best time trialists in the world. Like Ugo Ull is a multiple national time trial champion in in Canada. He's won the Pan American Games time trial. Fred Wright is obviously on on brilliant form. Um, same with Matteo Jorgensen, and you know to have. Quinn Simmons and Mads Pedersen from the same team in the break. You know, that's that seven-ride break. Once it had gone and once it had gained a couple of minutes, even though the peloton kept on making eff- different efforts to try and catch it, I, I felt it was going to stick all the way to the end. And also when we saw the, when we saw the, the, the heat, you know, because it, we're, we're getting into that, that period when it's going to be, you know, uh, probably in the next few days over 40 you know, the, the, the degrees Celsius, uh, so really scorching heat. I told myself, you know, Mats Pedersen that doesn't like the, the heat is the guy who won the World Championships in the rain and cold, so uh, it's not going to be a good day for him, as usual, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm happy I didn't, I didn't bet any money on that. Now, uh, the, the, the also, the, the uh, astonishing fact was that, you know, Kung and Ghana were probably the ones pulling the hardest to, to, to kind of, uh, and, you know, rid of, of, of the chase by the, by the peloton. And, and as often is the case in, in the finale, uh, they, they were dropped by, you know, the, the, the guys who, obviously, Mas Pedersen, Quinn Simmons kind of sacrificed himself for his uh, teammates. And uh, Hugo Hull was probably not pulling as hard as the other two. And, 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 and Fred Wright has been in many, many uh, breaks. I mean, it's, a, a tr- you know, really homage to, uh, to his Tour de France because he's, he's trying hard. He's been trying... Day, you know, every day a little bit more, and it gets a little bit closer. And in in, in the finale, the probably the the the, the, the three f- freshest uh, riders, but also probably the most cunning of, of the of the break, uh, you know, b- battled it out for stage victory. Well, I think it was quite obvious from the start that Mads Pedersen was was desperate to get in a break because he seemed to be going in every move uh, that there was. And I know Ed that you uh, put out on Twitter um, a little your own little algorithm of, of how the teams are faring in terms of exposure. And, and I mean, it could be said that Trek Segafredo up until this point uh, didn't have too much to uh, be proud of. No, not so far. They've, they, uh, they've had a quiet tour so far, and a relatively unsuccessful tour. Um, they've, now won a, you know, they've now won a stage, which you know, that's the, one of the best things you can do in the tour in terms of publicity. And sports, so yeah, they've 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 kind of you could say they've rescued their tour today. We're only halfway through. Um, one interesting fact is that you know they they became the ninth team to have won a stage this year, and it seems like more teams are winning stages this year. Ninth already after thirteen state uh, thirteen stages, and in the whole of last year, there are only eight teams that won stages. So it seems like things are being shared out a bit more equitably this year, and 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 teams are you know. Teams are, they're not just coming to see what happens. I mean, Trek Segafredo had the best plan today. They were the team that put two riders in the break. You know, they have been trying hard over the course of this tour. And today was the day it finally paid off. Well, uh, shall we hear from the other guy, the other Trek Segafredo rider that was was in that break, uh, who actually towed Mads Pedersen across uh, to break. And that was uh, Quinn Simmons. And he spoke to you, uh, Ian, a little earlier. First tour win for a long time. And uh, for me, it's... You know, I couldn't win. It was clear. You know, he's so good that we commit instantly that Mads is going for it. And yeah, you, you then are dropped and you're sitting in the yeah. Gruppetto for 30K wondering what happened. And you get across the finish line and see him 
doing the interview at the end, it's, it's something quite special. Yeah, so I caught up with Quinn at the finish, and actually just before he spoke to the mic, he was uh, he was chatting with his dad, and he was his, his dad is a is an avid cyclist and probably his biggest training buddy back home in Durango, Colorado, and both he and his dad were kind of hooting and hollering in a very a very American way, and you know his dad was super happy, obviously because Mads won the stage, but that Quinn played such an integral part in the stage, and you know it's great to see you know Quinn play such a, an important role in you know in such a big race, and you know he's 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 had a really good tour up to this point for being such a young rider and you know amount around the whole track team it, you could really see how much it meant meant to them and especially to someone like Quinn and uh, Quinn Simmons himself had been trying to get into many breaks uh, already uh, this tour and uh, Francois you've mentioned him already but uh, Fred Wright of course uh, I think he was disappointed on that uh, stage uh, 10 into Mejev when uh, and he was hoping to get at least the uh, most combative rider uh, numbers. But I think it was decided before Mattia Catania uh, dropped out and uh, it went to uh, Mattia instead. Um, but, you know, how, Francois, uh, how impressive is Fred Wright's uh, performance? I, th- I think he, he, he's trying. I mean, it, it was quite touching to see him, you know, in the, at the buses at the, the finish line. He, w- he was, you, you could tell he was really frustrated and, and and gutted as he uh, uh, you know as he said, but in the same time he was all smiles and uh, reluctant to talk, but in the same time willing to. He, w- he was, for, for lack of a better word, I, I found him sweet, you know, uh, uh, at the finish because it, it, as we know he's a young rider as well, and really you know trying hard, trying hard, well hoping that you know one day will be the day, and he came really close today, and um, and well the only thing we can wish for him is to keep trying. Well, uh, let's hear from him now as well. This is Fred Wright of Bahrain Victorious. I'm a bit gutted, to be honest. But, I mean, I tried, so... Second's still pretty good, but, you know, I wanted that, wanted that win. Fair play to Mads, he was, he was super strong, so... I needed to attack on the last climb, but I just... That tempo was... That was as hard as I could go. And as soon as we got over it, I think that... That was me, like, damn, I, I, it's going to going to be a sprint and I'm not going to be able to beat him but no nah, he, he was the fact that I just didn't think he was going to attack at the start of that climb and then obviously you've got to follow you know and I did but that then I couldn't I couldn't go any harder after that I did it better this time than last time and yeah I'll do it better next time and hopefully there will be a next time maybe not in this tour but at some point there will be a next time well, of course, we've spoken a lot about the uh, composition of that uh, breakaway. Uh, but as you mentioned, Francois, uh, so much of it came down to that uh, little misjudgment by Lotto Soudal uh, at the front of the peloton and that crash by Caleb Ewan. I mean, uh, for Caleb Ewan, you know, is, we, we've known him so, you know, uh, brilliant, flamboyant, in, in, in past Tour de France, uh, I mean the the the, the, the year when he uh, won in Paris and uh, and you know he had, he had all these wins on the race. He's he's been struggling all year. Let's face it, and uh, and this Tour de France for him is, is really you know is re- maybe not a nightmare will be a little bit, a little bit uh, probably a little bit excessive, but he's, he's struggling. He, he was never really in the mix in the in the in the, in the bunch sprints. Always something always went wrong every time. Uh, 
it's been dropped in the mountains. That's uh, of course, you know, uh, things like that happen. You you remember when we uh, we were in the um, uh, I think it's uh, the the stage to Mojave, yes, um, that we saw. You know, his his, his uh, teammates not waiting for him. You know, uh, and he managed to get into the t inside the time cut. Uh, I don't know. We 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 hope for you know for uh, for for him and for any rider of his of his caliber to. Find something, you know, to break the jinx or something. But today, again, you know, and very often, you know, the problems he had in this Tour de France were were, were with the teammates, like you know, crashing inside one guy, uh, you know, the w touching the wheel or you know, little. When you know, some we have a saying uh, in French: "Quand quand ça veut pas, ça veut pas." When he doesn't want to work, he doesn't want to work, and that's 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 my my impression on on Caleb on this Tour de France, and it's also the impression of his uh, Lotto Soudal team manager John Lelong, uh, to whom I I, I talked uh, at the finish. So John Lelong, uh, the cycling podcast. I guess uh, it was not the best uh, best of. The best Tour de France possible for Caleb, obviously. Not yet. It's not the best season, I think. Sick before Milan Sanremo, crashing in uh, in the Giro. Yeah, crashing here in the Robe stage, which was an objective. Being two times in the Goodwill in the sprints, beginning of the, the Tour. Yeah, it's like this. But uh, black cat. But uh, proud of the guys because we took the the race in our hands with Salpesin and uh, and Lotto Sudal, and that was pretty nice to see. We tried a few times. And, uh, and thank you to Alpesin for the fair play also. I cannot say this from all the teams uh, because this is not uh, not really correct to try to accelerate some teams just after the crash of Caleb was a little bit... Uh, and at the end, they are losing everything. So I'm happy like this. And Caleb kept, kept, kept going, kept trying. I mean, he, he, he showed a lot of respect for this race. Of course, of course. And I hope that his knee will allow him to, uh, to keep going on... Uh, on the last uh, week and on the stage of the Friday and the Sunday, of course. There's, there's hot stages com coming, of course, and the heat will be a factor, but the, uh, the next rest is not so far away. Yeah, but I think that he was really feeling better and better after the two-half stage, and you saw it. He was always in the 10th first position. We tried to make the race harder with Alpesin and, and Lotto Sudal two times, three times. We were really good on the, on the way that we were maintaining the, the breakaway. I think that if he's not crashing, I think that we make a, a big change that there is a sprint here. Because, uh, yeah, like we were riding and maintaining, there is no reason. After some teams are deciding to begin to ride full gas once he's crashing, at the end they are losing everything. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that I've noticed just observing Caleb and, and the team, I feel like there's a lot of stress within the team. I mean, obviously they came here with, you know, a team built around Caleb and, you know, very few other, you know, riders to potentially win a stage or they're not going for GC. You know, I think another thing that comes into play here is the whole relegation and, and point system for the UCI to stay in the world tour. And, and I did read on Twitter after the stage that, um, you know, one thing that they had to, his team had to watch out for is they couldn't really pace him back after the rate because there's a deduction of points if you motor pace him you know if you get a penalty of you know 20 points so then the potential of them even losing points on a stage is something they have to consider which is something that has really kind of you know we're seeing this point system change how people are racing and how teams are racing but now we're actually seeing it affect you know even how cars are potentially driving in the caravan that you know his team car wouldn't drop back and, and or couldn't motor pace him back in case they potentially got docked some points which really does kind of change you know there's there's a lot more going on i think than than maybe people see on tv and ian how from a rider's perspective how difficult would it be there's not going to be loads of opportunities uh, for the likes of caleb ewan 
in this Tour de France now, you know, how difficult is it to see an opportunity uh, and a bit of bad luck, you know, put paid to that opportunity and not have many other chances in a race as important as the Tour de France? Yeah, I mean, I spoke to Caleb off the record the other day or without recording, um, and he was just not, he wasn't, you know, the positive rider that he normally is. And, you know, to him to for him to crash where he did, I think he probably, you know, he went up onto the barrier and kind of sat there, and I think, you know, probably in his head he wanted to just stop the stop the tour because you know there's a potential sprint stage on stage 19 and then obviously the Champs-Élysées but you know there's a lot of tough days between now and then and you know it was just one less opportunity and and I think that it's got to be incredibly frustrating for him and every time he's not performing he doesn't have a chance to win or he gets boxed in at the wrong time you know that that pressure builds and you know there's also more pressure coming from the team you know you have a, a cycling legend like Philippe Gilbert pulling on the front for you in his last Tour de France and you're not able to come through. And unfortunately, all that pressure kind of falls back on Caleb, whether, you know, he hears it or not. It, you know, he knows that the team is there for him. This year, we asked our partners, MAP, to create three jersey designs imagining the cycling podcast as a pro team. The fantastic jersey they came up with are called Check, Dot and Fade. Here's the man behind the jerseys, designer Misha Glisevich, to tell us about the second design, Dot which was inspired by the 1980s. I mean, I'm, you know, uh, love fonts and typography. So it was kind of, it was exciting to do that and go back and look through the eras and also look at the old letter set, font sets and uh, really find, I think that particularly that one you're right, is very reminiscent of that 80s era. Um, and it's probably the easiest, you know, and the easiest one to do because it, it had such a strong aesthetic back then and fonts were so distinctive. Uh, but yeah, that was definitely fun to do. As you know, we don't really get to do that at MAP and kind of really try and kind of hit the nail on the head with an era. It's the MAP-A era, so I'm kind of feeling like that. that's sort of what I get from it. It's those colours, and for some reason I keep on thinking it's a MAP-A reference, although I can't see it in there, but just the kind of, you know, the, the blocks, and this is the, the blobby kind of shapes. It's reminiscent of that somehow. Um, yeah, so I think I'd have to go for the middle one. Although seeing the seeing the the fade in real life um, did sway me because the gradient's incredible and just really feels um, elevated and luxurious, you know, it feels really really nice. Take a look at Dot and the other designs, and most importantly, vote for your favourite at map.cc. M-A-A-P.cc. Bonjour, bonjour. The fourth installment of Breakfast with Boz here on the Cycling Podcast. Still up in Alpe d'Huez this morning. It is sunny, clear, and beautiful up here. It's also nice and cool. I know we have some hot days ahead of us. And for breakfast this morning, I have once again a new sweet treat. A chasson aux pommes, which is, I would say, kind of like an apple hand pie, although the crust is much more croissant-esque. It's a flaky crust around an apple pie filling. It's delicious, and I also have a treat salé, which is a quiche legume, so a vegetable quiche this morning. I feel like I'm kind of getting into a trend of something sweet and something savory. Both great. Um, my plans today are slightly different. I was up early enough that I could have gone for a little ride, However, I'm feeling the effects of a longer ride yesterday, and I think the Tour de France is starting to catch up with me after only four days. We've been staying up late, and I've been waking up early to try to ride, 
plus then being engaged in the race and running around trying to capture audio. So I think I may take a, a morning off. We're actually going to head straight from here in Lauk d'Huez to St. Etienne. And it's about a three-hour drive. We may actually arrive at the finish before the stage starts. So depending on what happens in the stage, I may sneak out for a short spin depending. But at the same time, I am no longer a professional cyclist. So if I can't ride my bike today, it's not a problem. I'm actually sitting here in a little roundabout up in Ez. And I'm noticing that there's a lot of vegetables and salad growing in here, which is quite nice. I see some Swiss chard, some kale, and another vegetable that I actually don't know the name of. It's a little bit like an artichoke-looking plant. I've had it in Italy before, and they take it and saute or cook the, the stalk of the, of the plant. Um, I'll maybe ask Francois if he knows what it is, because it's quite delicious when cooked right. So who knows, maybe I could actually take some of this uh, kale and put it on my quiche this morning. I might pull a, pull a couple leaves and then head back to our apartment and uh, finish up my breakfast, grab a coffee, and then jump in the car with Francois and head down into the heat to St. Etienne for stage 13 of this year's Tour de France. Well, that was today's edition of Breakfast with Boz. And I think the question on everyone's lips is what was the mystery vegetable? Did you work, did Francois work it out? I actually didn't ask Francois this. I completely oh. forgot. Um, <laughs> there is this vegetable that I've seen in Italy a lot. It almost looks like an artichoke, but it's a long green leafy, almost like a spiky green, like it's not lettuce, but it's grows tall. And oh. you find it a lot around Cote d'Azur, like over in Italy, especially what, in Italy. Br- broccoli, you mean? Or? No. Or you got fennel, that, that, but, but it's not fennel. Can no, it's like like a stalk. Yeah. And then it becomes sharp. Well, I really don't know, actually. <laughs> we, stumped, we stumped Francois again. Oh, Ed may know. No, it's just from, from having lived in France myself, I just always assume that the mystery of Ezreal is endive. Oh. Yes, that's true. I was going to suggest oh, yeah, endive oh, yeah. as if, well. Uh, if, it's, if it's really look like salad and you and you got kind of leaves, you can... You know, it's it's green at the at, at, at the bottom and and a little bit whiter at the top. It's not endive. I know, oh, I know, I know, no. And, oh. and it's funny because I've eaten it once. I've eaten it a couple times. Usually over in in Italy, I guess I've had it um, near like Savona, and I guess up even in in Piemonte. And it's a long stock. Well, a listener will know. I'm sure we have, or we can try to we can sure. try to speak to Chiro tomorrow. Maybe he <laughs> maybe he knows because it, it's very popular and more so in Italy than in France. Well, I know obviously you've been tucking into your uh, French pastries uh, this week, Boz, but of course it really you should be eating Danish pastries, perhaps the way that this uh, tour has gone uh, so recently. Three stage wins for the Danes in the last uh, uh, four days. It's been quite a, a triumph for a, a race that actually began in Denmark, didn't it, Francois? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we knew it would be the, the Danish tour from the, from the start, you know, with the start in Copenhagen. And 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 it, and it's, it's been a Danish festival. Let's face it, you know, uh, Magnus Court has been with everybody's hero, uh, you know, back in uh, Denmark. He was again, you know, winning the stage in in his very uh, well, you know, yes, spectacular fashion. And um, and now, you know, Mats Pedersen, we knew he would be, you know, someone to look for. Of course, Jonas Vingegaard is in the yellow jersey, won a stage. I mean, it's. Uh, uh, 
it reminds me the Frenchman who is frustrated by you know the French re French results and on the, on the Tour de France for quite quite a bit of time. Uh, the, the, you, you know the last country to have won three stages in four days in on the Tour de France. Mm -hmm. That was radio radio silent. Uh, Brit Great Britain. Well, it was Great Britain. 2016. You, ah. you, you had you had Mark Cavendish winning the next day. I think uh, two days later, Steve Cummings won at Lac de Payol, and Chris Froome won, won in Bagnères de Bigorre. I think so. The last time that happened was was maybe at the peak of uh, you know Britain's domination of the sport. So who knows? Maybe now it's time to you know uh, hand over the uh, the baton to uh, to Denmark. Yeah, man, and I think this is something that we've seen for a while, the, the Danish riders knocking on the door. And I even remember when I was an under-23 20 or under 23 and a junior that I had once heard that there were maybe less than 100 junior riders registered with the Federation in, in Denmark, and yet you would go to every Nations Cup race, and they would be stacked with, with Danish riders. You know, the riders that we're seeing today, you know, Magnus Kord, and, you know, my younger brother raced against Mads a lot, and, and they were winning everything. And it really is impressive that they have developed such a strong cycling culture and 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 really their racers have become some of the best riders in the world yeah and i, th I think at this tour de france it's it's basically been the opposite of what francois just said about caleb ewan when it's the opposite with denmark it's it's an example of how momentum can build in in a in a bike race and in anything because you know we we did have that spectacular danish start and really there's the fact it was spectacular is mainly down to the fact that the fans turned out in their in their droves, and Magnus Court had a couple of days off the front. And you know that second day when he was in the King of the Mountains jersey, and was riding on his own off the front of all those crowds was you know it remains for me one of the memories of the tour. And you know it, it was specifically Danish. You know it's kind of a Danish rider with the Danish public in in Denmark, but you know they it's 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 built. It's not just been the Danish stages that have been great for Danish cycling. You know, Court continued going on the attack. He ended up winning a stage which, you know, was a absolutely brilliant, um, you know, a mix of strength, luck, um, doggedness, um, sprinting speed, and, you know, it, it, it was fantastic to watch. And, you know, Vingegaard has won the stage and is in the yellow jersey. And then today, Mads Pedersen, it just seems that each time they have success, it just builds more and more success for the whole whole country's cyclists. And talking about Mats Pedersen, another stat because I got I've got these guys sending me all these stats, so I, I can you know of course you like to hear those. Uh, Mats Pedersen is actually the, the rider who's had the most top ten finishes this season, so it was it was only natural that it, he, he ended up you know uh, winning this. What he said as well, Mats Pedersen in the press conference, he said, "What's what's nice about." Danish cycling these days is that they have a whole range of different riders. They have a climber in Vingegaard, they have a sprinter in himself, they have a kind of all-rounded baroudeur in court, and many others we can... So, so it, you know, it's not like... Well, you'd expect Colombians to be, to, to be, you know, climbers and sometimes Belgian to be more like, you know, the type of, you know, one-day classic... The, the 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 Danes have, have have it all. They have all the the, the all the range of uh, you know of cycling uh, abilities, and and that's that's really impressive. I was going to say, there's one more thing about uh, Danish cyclists. I think Pedersen still lives in Denmark. I mean, a lot a lot of cyclists from North Europe tend to go and you know live in Girona or you know, somewhere warmer or at altitude in Andorra. And um, I remember reading a, a feature we had in Pro Cycling a magazine I used to work for a couple of years ago 
where he talked about wanting to stay in Denmark because it, it kind of kept him grounded and focused and he loved it there and he felt content and happy and that you know that's the foundation upon which he builds his um, success as a cyclist so I thought that was quite interesting about Pedersen that he's he's he is he's so Danish he's carried on living in Denmark <laughs> and uh, I know Ian that you've been uh, on the hunt to find out the secret to Danish um, success tell us a, a bit about who you spoke to and uh, and you know what they said yeah so I actually um after these recordings, I got a note from a fan or from a listener on, on Twitter that we hadn't spoken enough about kind of the Danish success at the tour. And, you know, I think yesterday we, we did focus on, you know, Pogacar and him, you know, kind of what he looked like yesterday and obviously Pidcock winning the stage. But, um, yeah, we, we have been recording some audio with some Danish fans, directors, and former racers. So we're about to hear from Mads director, Luca Guercholina from Trek. We're going to hear from former Tour de France yellow jersey wearer, Michael Rasmussen, and also a fan that I actually spoke to yesterday on the top of the Col de Lauderay, Dan, the fan from Denmark. I mean, this has really been the tour for the Danish riders, and, and Mads taking a, a victory today and a, and a big victory for, for you and the team. Yeah, well, first I think that the Danish cycling is a while that proved that they're a strong generation of riders. I believe the federation itself worked very well years ago, building up from junior to top. And uh, at this Tour de France especially, they all proved how strong they are. I think also starting from Denmark gave them the confidence to prepare the Tour de France at 100%. And Mats is exactly the same. You know, he arrived really with a very good condition and uh, he proved it today. So very good for him, very good for us. Well, Michael, this has really been not just the tour that started in Denmark, but the Danish riders have been dominating the race. Yeah, it's uh, it's unreal until now. Three stage wins, three different riders, um, and you know, mountain jersey, yellow jersey. It's, it's I, I cannot think of another tour like that. Well, and you know, the race started in Denmark, and obviously we've left now, but I'm sure you're still pretty well tied into what's happening there. Has the energy and the excitement of the tour carried on as the race left now that the Danes are still, you know, winning stages and in yellow? Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure it has. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure that Denmark is going ballistic right now. Um, and you know, yesterday I wrote Alp Duis and you know they are speaking more more Danish and French and, and Dutch on that uh, climb now. Um, and I'm, I'm quite sure when we get to Paris, um, you will notice it. Well, and you were a rider who you know clearly knew what it was like to be informed to, to win a Grand Tour. When you look at Jonas, do you see any flaws that are chinks in his armor, or do you think he's you know looking strong enough? I mean, yesterday it looks like he didn't have any struggle following Pogacar. No, I, the only thing you know you can, um, the only thing that, that, that you know that can push Jonas away from that yellow jersey is Pogacar himself. And you know, I don't think that Pogacar he was actually quite on top yesterday. Um, he was he was certainly better on on Galibier. Um but you know I, I think that the way that Jonas and and especially Jumbo they're riding, uh, he will uh, he will carry it on on all the way to Paris. I'm here at the top of Col de Lauderay with Dan from Denmark, and yesterday we saw Vingegaard take... We, we saw history yesterday. Yeah? Yeah. I was at the 3.8 kilometers to go, and I was filming in 4K, and uh, as I'm filming Vingegaard when he passes Quintana, and I'm standing there, I'm yelling, I'm going, he is winning the tour, he is winning the tour. 
And then like a minute and a half later, uh, Pogacar comes by and he's totally dead. He's so spent. He's looking down into the asphalt and there's no power. I'm going, Vingård's got it. And he's like totally ecstatic, jumping up and down. It was really hard to get the hands down yesterday. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to our sponsors, Science in Sport. Of course, we heard in our recent Kilometre Zero episode about the efforts that our producers Adam and Hugh put out to complete the ETAP at the weekend. And if you're looking ahead to a challenge of your own, then head to scienceinsport.com for all your nutritional needs, whether that be for energy, hydration or recovery. And don't forget to get 25% off their products when you head to scienceinsport.com and use the code SISCP25. Well, it's been a breathless uh, few days at the Tour de France, but um, there's more to be uh, more of that to be expected uh, tomorrow, isn't there, Francois, with the uh, trip to Mondes? Yeah, I mean, breathless might be the word because the, the heat, as we mentioned already, is getting you know worse and worse, or, or better and better for the, for the guys who like me like the heat a little bit. But yeah, tomorrow promises to be really, really hot, and even more so in the days to come. And we we know very well now the the last you know the, that short and and kind of steep and dynamic climb up to the uh, overmond uh, which which is sometimes called monte laurent jalabert because he was one of the first guys to win there in the mid 90s when he was with anse um it's it, yeah i mean we we we're kind of expecting maybe that uh, on be, before the, the the rest day that's coming before the Pyrenees, maybe uh, you know Tani Pogacar will try once again to to show his here and maybe try something, even if it's uh, it, it's it's. I mean, it's it's. I think most of the climber Jonas Vingegaard today was saying it might not be the kind of climb uh, he likes, but I I I kind of feel uh, it, it'll be a, a battle if only by principle by the GC leaders uh, tomorrow on this on this short but you know very very exciting uh, little climb and um, yeah th- th- there won't be huge time gaps but th- th- there will be obviously an attempt to 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 try and put you know records straight i mean it's going to be an, an, an exciting battle on this on this you know very short but very dense uh, moment of, of the tour yeah, I mean, I think any of these stages here in the Massive Central are they're always kind of sticky and, and and grippy races, and and it is a really hard climb up to the finish. You know, it's it's not incredibly long, but it's it's pretty steep, it's pretty straight, and it and it comes after a tough day of racing. Um, I think you know traditionally we would probably see a breakaway go to the finish, and obviously, as Francois was saying, it could be an opportunity for for Pogacar to take time, and ideally he could also take a time bonus, but I don't think he really at the moment has a team to ride the front and and keep things in control. So I would. Imagine to, I would ma- imagine that tomorrow we'll probably see a, a breakaway go away, and um, Ed has been putting his money on another Trek Segafredo rider, Bauke Molema. Yeah, no, I, I, th- I think tomorrow, tomorrow the break will will stick for the reasons Ian just said. Um, Pogacar would like the time bonus, but his team just isn't in the shape to to control the race all the way, especially on those hard roads. I mean, the, I've, I've cycled in the Massif Central, and it, that area specialises in this kind of optical illusion where the road looks like it's downhill, but it feels like you're riding uphill. And it's such hard, grippy, gravelly, sticky, 
on a narrow narrow road and it's up and down all day long so I, I imagine yeah you, know, you won't be able to control it Yumbo will be very happy to let the break go for the same reasons that they don't want anyone else to get a time bonus and then I, I actually think you know everyone's saying that the climb's better suited to Pogacar but from what I'm seeing still Vingegaard does look a bit stronger than Pogacar. Vingegaard matched him yesterday on Alpes and dropped him on the Col de Grenoble. And I think he's got slightly better form than Pogacar. So I expect a showy attack from Pogacar. But as with yesterday on Alpes it, it may not stick. He, he wasn't able to actually drop Vingegaard, in which case you'll, you, you may end up with a neutralisation of the GC favourites. But going back to Ian's original point, I've been talking up Balcom Olimar for a stage this tour, just because he's the kind of strong, resilient rider who, who's got a nose for getting in good breaks and very good at climbing. And on a day like tomorrow, um, maybe unlike some of the other hilly stages, it's going to be the best climber in the break who succeeds. On the day that Magnus, on the day to Mejev, yeah, there, there was no one who was particularly climbing better than the others who could use use that you know, use that to drop the others. But I, f- I feel on daylight tomorrow, the best climber who gets in the break will win the stage. Well, we do have a bit of experience, don't we, uh, of this finish. One of the most thrilling uh, finishes of in recent memory was the um, in 2015 when Steve Cummings uh, won in uh, Mond. And it was Thibaut Pinot and Roman Bardet seemed to be ahead on that final rise, uh, but started looking at each other more than looking at the finish line. And Steve Cummings swooped on that final uh, corner uh, to take the win and uh, Ian you caught up with uh, Steve to uh, tell us a little bit more about that uh, what his memories are of that win well Steve-o seven years since you won it fucking hell yeah Mond. I mean you're you're behind the car now with uh, with Ineos and you know I guess I've heard that a lot of riders in the team are really enjoying what you've what you've brought to the team and I guess before we get to that you know the way in which you won at Mond was very Cummings-esque. I mean, when you when, coming back here as a director, going back to a stage like that, what are your memories? Uh, yeah, good, good memories. Uh, happy, yeah, happy. I was, I was pretty relieved at the time. Actually, I was 35 years old, so I hadn't really won a decent break. Well, no, I won something, but not too much. And um, yeah, it was like a reward for, like, for me, but also for my family for like a lot of hard work. So it was quite emotional. Um, but, but yeah. It's all good now. <laughs> and we saw Ghana up the road again. I mean, the last two days, I guess, we've seen somewhat untraditional Ineos tactics, you know, with still having a rider in GC, but then racing, you know, allowing riders on individual days to actually go and, and, you know, try to get a stage result. Is that something that you've brought to the team? Um, I don't, not, not just me. I think we've been doing it all, all year, really. So it's, it's credit to the team, like it comes from the top, really. Um, but yeah, I think we need to race to win every day. And we have the riders who, who can can do that we're fortunate that we have those engines so every day if we think we if we go in the breakaway it's because we we think we can win um we won yesterday we were close today um so yeah if we're not leading the gc we don't have the responsibility which gives us more opportunity simple as that we might as well try (laughs) but it's better than sitting in the peloton huh well, we touched on it then. That was, uh, of course, uh, uh, that day was a, a win for the breakaway. But uh, it did have, uh, there was potential, wasn't there, then uh, for machinations in the GC battle. Um, I remember Froome uh, just pipping Quintana to the line there. So we should be expecting uh, more of the same, or po- or possibly not if it gets neutralised uh, in the way that Ed mentioned. But mm. uh, if there was, um, then one of those 
Uh, guys, that was there in that 2015 stage. Nairo Quintana um, might be looking to do something. It doesn't really uh, suit him, though, does it, Francois? That that kind yeah, of yeah. It's a, I mean, he's, he's he's older now, you know, and it may, he, he may not. He's, he's become a, a much much more of an all rounder uh, Nairo, but he, he probably doesn't have the kick he used to have at the, at, at the time. I, I still believe there will be uh, you know time gaps be, between the GC contenders are on the climb, but like two, three, four seconds. They're going to. It's going to be kind of an uphill sprint between them I mean uh, so, so I don't think that it'll be totally neutralized but I mean of course it won't amount to too much as for Nairo the problem is uh, we, we saw it, we saw in uh, in the Alps that uh, he, he was he was really pairing well with Warren Barguil, uh, who, who was probably his, his best right-hand man in the mountains but unfortunately Warren Barguil didn't start is the latest uh, you know positive COVID test on this uh, Tour de France and um, it, it's it's a real loss for uh, Nairo because he is it he needs you know he's always needed to have a little bit of support in the mountains and now he is is is, is more or less you know left to his own uh, devices and it, in the upcoming Pyrenees um, so I mean he's been doing well in this tour you know always staying in the top ten and close to the to the very best uh, but the the loss of Bargill could be really costly and uh, I, I talked to uh, his uh, um, team uh, manager. Uh, and while well, team director Yvon Le Danois, which means the da- the Dane in French, you, we we don't you know we stay in the in the in the Danish angle in a way, <laughs> and, Yvon, and Yvon Le Danois was uh, yeah what what you you could hear and you 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 will hear that if he, you know he sounds he sounds a little bit uh, uh, well sorry that you know Bargill is out of the race and uh, and it, the, the the chances for 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 Naro look a little bit dimmer now. I'm with Yvonne Le Danois, the uh, Arkea Something team director. Uh, Warren couldn't start this morning. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, sleeping very bad for him uh, after dinner yesterday and this morning with a fever. So we don't take the risk uh, with a fever. No start. I think it's a, it's a good decision for him for and for, for us. It's, uh, I'm disappointed because I, I lose one leader, but uh, it's a life. So he, he, he had a positive test for COVID in the end, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And no, no other, you know, no other worries. No, 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 no. Every riders, everyone uh, in the staff and the riders is negative, but uh, just him yesterday, this morning. So everyone, it's a little bit disappointed, but uh, it's a life, and with this COVID, uh, you never know. He was going back to his best form. I mean, we saw him attacking them in the Alps and yeah. looking like his former self. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, for, for us, for the last week uh, in the Pyrenees with uh, Nairo, we lose one ride that's very important, so we need to <laughs> we need to <laughs> we look in the front now. Uh, yeah, we yes. don't have a solution. Well, I'll uh, leave you three to get rested, probably enjoy a, a very fancy meal that I've been... Frog uh, legs. I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a big poster behind us. Grenouille. Menu du jour, so frog legs, you know, will be my. I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I'll, I'll go for it. I usually order what Francois orders. <laughs> <laughs> so frog legs all round. That sounds delicious. Well, uh, thank you, Ed, uh, for joining us. Thank uh, you for having tonight. me. Uh, and thank you, as always, to Francois and Ian. And uh, playing you out tonight on the Tour de Buffalo, uh, we're delving into the 2016 Friends of the Podcast special. Uh, young Americans when Richard was invited to Nice to hang out with Young Guns, uh, Joe Dombrowski and Larry Warbass and of course uh, Ian 
Boswell. Now, um, Ian, before we before we play that uh, moment uh, of Richard, tell us uh, what was it like when he visited? What are your memories of his visit? to Nice with you. Yeah, I mean, even at, at the time that Richard came down to Nice, I was already a fan and a friend of the podcast. And, you know, I, I mean, I guess, you know, I felt honored that he wanted to take a trip down and, and speak with us. And I remember we actually rode up Col de Madone, I think the three of us, and Richard had rented a little Vespa scooter and, and followed us. And it was actually pretty cold and, you know, wet at the top. And, you know, he was really just like such a kid still. He was, he had a big smile on his face. And obviously, you know, we were plenty warm because we were riding, but he was just you know, have you ever seen the movie Dumb and Dumber? He kind of looked like Lloyd on the back of the scooter, you know, just this guy on a, on a tiny little scooter and, you know, fairly underdressed because I think he just flew down with a backpack. But, you know, such great memories of, of you know, the two times Richard came down to, to Nice to visit. Um, and, you know, speaking of which, we actually had a little moment of Richard today. We we parked our car at the Salon de Presse or the, the press center and we were trying to find shade because it has been so hot. And so our driver over here, Ed, was like, oh, I'll park under, you know, park under this tree. And Francois notified us that uh, that Richard would never park under a tree because that means that a bird is going to poop on your car. And lo and behold, we came out after the stage and there was some bird poop on the car. So even though Richard's not with us, he is he's definitely still with us here on the tour. <laughs> still throwing bird poop on your car from, from the heavens. <laughs> I love that idea. Well, um, we're going to play you out with that that clip from back in uh, 2016. And I think we can all tonight uh, raise our beers uh, to Richard Moore and, uh, yeah, enjoy this, enjoy this moment with him. The Tour du Buffalo, remembering Richard Moore. So off we went, them peddling, me vespering along the coast towards the famous or infamous Col de la Madone. So did you beat beat Lance's record up there, Ian? Uh, considering we're only two thirds up the climb, I don't uh, I don't think so. But you were doing a little uh, interval there. What was the? Uh, yeah, yeah. What just, was the aim? Um, just kind of kind of see more matter. Just got back from Australia a couple of days ago, so just like a 15 minute. I know there's a dangerous thing called Strava, and oftentimes my intervals that are supposed to be zone three turn into. Uh, Strava hunts. <laughs> so well, the Strava times around here must take some beating, considering yeah. the riders who, are, who live around here. Yeah, I mean, I think like this, the Madone here, like there's a pretty prominent segment from where we started to right here, kind of like around a 20-minute time. Um, yeah, but I think, you know, Kenny Ellison's up there, Gustav Larsson, Gilbert, uh, Louis Westra. So it's a, yeah, I think you know you're going well if you take a Strava up on the Madone. You think Joe's planted a... Uh his uh, timing device on my Vespa, do you? <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. No. Uh, yeah, it could be in there. <laughs> Some fast times. Are you feeling recovered from Australia? Yeah, more or less. You know, it's nice to come back and kind of just get straight into the swing of things. I think like we discussed yesterday, you know, we do have such a good base here. You know, I came back the first night. My girlfriend was here, you know, kind of went to bed early. And then the next night, you know, already had Joe and Larry over for dinner. And, you know, it's a really comfortable environment we have here now and it's it's homey so i think it makes it easy to kind of get back into into the routine did you see the post fan almost took me out there did you notice that yeah i did i saw you flick your elbow <laughs> I, was, I think you're taking in the taking in the view i was admiring the view exactly it's like we have I, I, think, I think that was chris Froome. <laughs> yeah the sonic boom um <laughs> a richie port movie oh. <laughs> <laughs> The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney.